Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Suzanne Lyons, one of my favorite people in the whole world, and she is currently the chair person of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And we're going to talk about some of the things that she has done over her tenure as a board member, but certainly her tenure as CEO of USOPC and board chair. Welcome, Suzanne. So great to have you. So great to be here, Lisa. Thank you. Absolutely. Suzanne, before we get into the USOPC, can you talk a little bit about your background? Because USOPC started for you back in 2010, officially as a board member, but you didn't wake up one day and become a board member. Can you talk a little bit about your career and what led you to USOPC? Sure, I'd be happy to because I am probably the last person anyone would have expected to someday end up as the chair of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. I was not a particularly distinguished athlete, and most of my career was not involved in sport. So how did I get from point A to point B? I graduated back in the, I hate to say it, in the late 70s, and I got an MBA in the early 80s, which was in the middle of a recession. And I tried nobly to send my resume around, et cetera. And I had a great deal of trouble finding my first job, as many young people do. And I actually became a temp. In order to just pay my rent, et cetera, I went out and I became a temp. And uh, the first place they sent me was Harvard Medical School. And I knew that I wasn't a doctor. So I said, can you send me somewhere where I might eventually get a job? So they sent me to a company called Fidelity Investments, which many of you will have heard of. And it was quite early in that company's evolution. And I came in as a temp and was pretty quickly hired as a full-time person at an entry-level job in financial services. And I spent 10 years learning about mutual funds and financial services. And after about 10 years, I transitioned to a different financial services company, Charles Schwab, which is on the West Coast. So I moved from East Coast to West Coast, but still pretty much doing marketing and executive management, working my way up the ladder in financial services. So still no whiff of sports anywhere in there. And my next big role really was at Visa. So I went over to become the chief marketing officer at Visa. And Visa is one of the largest sponsors of the Olympic movement. And they have been for many years. So as part of my marketing responsibilities, all of the sports marketing and all of the fun things related to athletes in the Olympics fell into my domain, if you will. And I got to go to my first Olympics, which was at Athens. And really got the bug, really just loved meeting athletes and seeing the competition and just the values that go behind something so remarkable that can bring 260 countries together that pretty much don't like each other much of the time, but are able through sport and through the work of these remarkably talented athletes to really be role models for peace around the world. So I really love that a lot. Fast forward, in the meantime, I've been joining a couple of boards, a couple of nonprofit boards, a couple of financial services boards. 
and I retired from my financial services career. And a few years thereafter, I learned that the US Olympic Committee was looking for three new independent board members. And one of the heads of one of the sports actually recommended me, put my name in the hat to say, here's someone who now knows a fair amount about the Olympics and has worked as a major sponsor. And fortunately, I was selected in 2010 to join the board of the USOC at the time, now the USOPC. So that's the strange and circuitous route through temping and financial services that actually led me to this amazing place that has now defined the last 10 years of my life. Oh my gosh, that is so incredible. Most times people think there is a direct line between college and your first job and your second job. But this is a reminder that you seem to pick up skills and have experiences and exposures all along the way. Let's go back to financial services for just a moment because oftentimes one of the first questions I get when people ask me about serving on boards is, can you read a balance sheet? Have you had profit and loss responsibility? You started as a temp, which is so incredibly interesting to me. The fact that you would have the intestinal fortitude to try something that you perhaps had not been exposed to before. But once you got into financial services, can you talk a little bit about your learning curve and how long that took? And when did you gain confidence around financial services? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love how you framed it, developing and building skill sets, because I came in my only real marketable skill, aside from half a brain and working hard, was that I had a pretty good background academically in marketing. So I started as a product assistant product manager in in marketing, learned about product management, learned about, I was a good copywriter. So I wrote a lot of copy and brochures. So that sort of was my first area. And then I began developing new products for my company. So that led me to have to learn quite a bit about mutual funds and how do you create a mutual fund and how do portfolio managers manage money and developing further and further knowledge about really what our company was about. And then I began to develop a lot of technology-based products. So I had to start working with our systems engineers and figure out how to do the first touch tone and first voice activated systems and things like that. So I became a little bit techie. I installed the very first little PC things where you could get a quote in a branch So you're adding and adding to that skill set. And then I began to manage people. You start out, you're an individual contributor. And before too long, I had a small staff and then I had a bigger staff. By the time I got to Schwab, at one point, I was running all the call centers. I had no qualifications to run a call center, but they figured she can figure things out. So I was put in charge at the time, 1,200 phone reps. That grew to 2,500. It grew to 5,000. We trained and hired 2,500 people in one year and built two call centers. So all of this along the way, none of these things were things I had been trained in, but I sure learned them as I went along. And I had a much larger staff by then, you know, managing thousands of people. And you learn a great deal about leadership. When you start, you learn about managing. You learn how to get things done yourself. Then you begin to learn how to get things done through a a group of people who work with you. And then if you're fortunate, sometimes you have the opportunity to learn how to become a leader and how to not just do the work yourself. How do you help other people become enabled and empowered to do the best work of their lives? And what does that mean to begin to set a vision that people can relate to and embrace and want to do their best work? And that's, some people are born with that. I think everybody can become a better leader. Not everybody's born a fantastic leader, but everyone can develop skills that help them understand that the stronger the people around you, the better work that can be done. 
And at some point it becomes not about you. It becomes very much about what you can do to help other people do great work. That's a lot of the learning that prepared me for my somewhat unexpected last three years where I took on some roles that I did not ever expect to do. No, point taken. That's a fabulous summary. So thank you for that. Let me back you up even more though, because oftentimes I hear young executives ask, how do I learn? Where is the person that shows me the example? Where is the opportunity for me to get my hands dirty before I have full responsibility and accountability for what's happening in a company? Did you have mentors along the way or did you see examples of leadership that gave you some guidance or gave you a pathway that you thought you could learn from? Yes. Surprisingly, I had very few mentors early on, which is ironic because I love mentoring and I mentor many people, but I was a good observer and I observed both what I would call excellent leadership and management that I tried to learn from and say, I would like to do things like this. And then there's what I call the antichrist of leadership, which are people that you work with where you say, I never want to be like that. The people who took all the credit and would never give credit to their employees who did all the work people who would yell at people in a meeting or just not be respectful in how they interacted, just people who were not good team players. So you learn as much from people who are bad at these things as you can from watching people who are good. So I would say I tried to take lessons from a lot of those people. And then I did have a a boss who I actually worked for probably eight years of the time when I was at Fidelity, who a little bit like all of us had been thrown into the deep end quite early in her career and was figuring it out but she had uh, quite a broad responsibility. She was one of the first women executive vice presidents there. And she, she wasn't a very nurturing mentor type. She was a really good boss. She was tough. She gave you a lot of feedback. She told you what you could do better. And she was very instrumental in many of the things that I learned along the way. And we're, we're still good friends to this day, which is now 40 years later. <laughs> Oh my God, that's a testament right there. Four decades of friendship after having worked together is quite amazing. So as you lead wherever you are today, it's at the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but I know you have served on corporate boards, you've served on nonprofit boards, you've served at senior executive levels. What would you say is your leadership style? Having seen the good ones and seen some really bad ones, what did you glean and how do you govern yourself when you're the leader. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. And I wrote a little list for myself. The first time I was given employees, I wrote a little list of what makes a good boss. And I tucked it away in a drawer. And about 10 or 15 years later, when I had much broader responsibility and many employees, I found it. And I thought, before I look at this, I'm going to write a new list. What do I think a good leader is? At first it was, what is a good manager? But now I wanted my, what's a good leader list. And then I took the old one and I looked and I compared and there were a number of strong similarities. One of them was give credit where it's due. One of them was give feedback in the moment. A lot of it was about communication, making sure you're a good communicator so people know what (laughs) you want them to do and how to get things done. But I noticed that the difference was as I became more mature in my leadership, more of it was, as I mentioned before, about setting a vision and helping motivate people and helping people see how that had something to do with their job. There can be like the big macro vision, but you have to figure out how to connect it to what that individual actually has control over, what they can do. I had tweaked that, if you will, as I went along the way 
to figure out how to make it a little bit less about me doing stuff and a little bit more about me helping other people see what they wanted to do. That's a little bit of that evolution of leadership along the way. I'm impressed that you wrote something down and put it in a drawer and were able to find it so you could compare at a future point. But it's holding yourself accountable a little bit too and being able to see the growth trajectory of not just managing, but leading, which is which is completely different. So I love the circuitous route to the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but I wanna talk about that because sport is so important in the world today. In and of itself, it's important to the athletes who are engaged, but certainly Olympic sports. We're talking about everybody everywhere, as you mentioned, and countries working together that normally don't. They don't find things in common, but sport seems to be a connector. So we love the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but it's not a perfect organization and it's had its challenges. And most recently, this is how you and I met in 2017, 2018. I'm trying to remember now, I think it was 2018. The USOPC was having some challenges. Can you talk about that and how your role changed from board member to acting CEO and then board chair? Yeah, so to give a little historical perspective on what happened, we'd been very successful in terms of our performance at the Games. Team USA had been very successful. We had wonderful athletes. We won a lot of medals. And I think we all fell into a trap that maybe other organizations do of thinking, so everything must be great. We All the visible signs are that we're being very successful and we're all a bunch of nice, hardworking people, so everything must be super And what occurred at the end of 2017 was the Indianapolis Star did an article, an expose, that said that a number of gymnasts had accused their team doctor at USA Gymnastics of sexually abusing them. And it was actually right in the middle of the Rio Olympics. So many of us on the board were actually in Rio. And in fact, I don't even know if I saw the article. I may have missed it because I was out of the country. And it started fairly small. There was this article that came out And it subsequently began to snowball because when the article came out, other young girls and women came forward to say, this happened to me as well. So what started as maybe three or four or five people that it was known had reported this suddenly began to snowball and it began to turn into 10 and 50 and 100. And then, of course, people began to ask questions. Who's known about this? Who knew what when? And we began at the board level because this was a complete surprise to everyone on the board. No one actually had heard anything about this until the article. We hired a company to go out and do an independent investigation to see what they could learn. And we discovered that there actually had been reports made within USA Gymnastics, that the CEO of USA Gymnastics was aware that there had been allegations, had not reported it promptly to law enforcement or to the FBI, And it actually subsequently turned out that a couple of people on the staff of the U.S. Olympic Committee also had been advised. I think they had been told at the time there were just a handful of people, but they knew about it. And so that began the board's work of saying, really, what did we know? What did we do? And why did we not find out about this? Now, meanwhile, more and more young ladies are coming forward. It ended up being hundreds of them, hundreds of young women who had been abused and many cases, their parents had been in the room when it happened, or they may have said, spoken up and said something to their parents, and their parents said, how can that be? He's a respected doctor. Coaches, a few coaches have been told. 
They said, how can that be? He's a respected doctor. The leadership at U.S. Gymnastics knew and was investigating, but didn't promptly do the right things in terms of calling in law enforcement. So this was a giant shock to the system. And suddenly it was a major news event. And in addition to just trying to figure out what happened, we had to examine ourselves and say, we're the top of this. We're the top of this food chain. How did we not know about it? And what could we have done that would have prevented this? What were the things in the system that allowed young girls to be ignored or to let people turn the other way because no one wants to see a young girl abused, but why did people not take action to stop this? At which point my association with Lisa Borders began shortly thereafter, I guess I should stop and say our CEO needed to step down. He had some health issues, but also with this going on, he really did need to step down. So he did board worked for that transition. And I was asked because I'd been leading this task force with the outside investigators to step into the acting CEO role. And as Lisa knows, which is another side story, in my 40s, when my children were young and I had some opportunities to be a CEO, I deliberately chose not to because I wasn't at that place in my life where I felt I could manage both being a CEO and managing a family. But here was a moment in time when there was a big need. Um, There was a need for someone to step into a pretty tough role. And my kids were all grown up and out of the house. So I spoke with my husband and said, I think I want to do this. I think I can help and I'd really like to step into this role. So uh, I became the acting CEO, I think, in February of 2018. And then we created a commission to look further into the who, what, when, where, why, and really to look more deeply at what was happening in this movement that we were all so proud of that had allowed this to happen. And that's where we were fortunate enough to get Lisa (laughs) to basically sign up to be the head of this commission. And they spent many months of work, Lisa can actually comment on how long it took and what they did, but really put together a host of recommendations for us that revealed that where we thought we had strengths, in fact, we had some weaknesses because we were not being stringent enough about looking at our partners in our individual sports. And we were letting them do their own thing and not having enough checks and balances in place to ensure that if something were amiss, we would know about it. So our oversight was very hands-off, and I think too hands-off because it allowed things like this to happen. And there, we discovered there were many cultural issues that led to all of that great performance, all of those medals we had won, that there were coaching styles and there were cultural norms within many of our sports that basically said, you're an athlete, tough it up, don't complain, don't tell anybody if you're unhappy because if you do, you're off the team. So there was a great fear of retribution. There was a fear that you'd be seen as a weakling or you wouldn't make the team if you complained in any way, and it created a culture of silence that had very negative repercussions. So that brings you to the beginning of this interesting saga. Suzanne, I am always just in awe when I think about the decisions that you have had to make as a leader, particularly at USOPC, as a board member, Yes, you were running a task force to look into a problem. It's like opening the can and it's got worms in there and just not at the bottom of the can. The entire can is full of worms. And you're like, oh my, I'm holding the can. I can't throw it away. I've got to deal with it. Talk about if you can, because I am just so pleased that you were the leader and you are the leader, that you were able to, in effect, have the intestinal fortitude to ask for outside help. Oftentimes when organizations or even us as individuals, when we are in crisis, 
either we're paralyzed or we're embarrassed. Either way, we don't necessarily reach out and get the help that we need. And I'm not talking about extreme Alcoholics Anonymous, although that in and of itself is a perfect example. It's an external force that tries to help you. Can you talk about what process that you go through in your mind to say, okay, we need some outside help. Let's go get some experts as opposed to let's keep this all in-house under wraps. Yeah. I think the most obvious thing was for us to have been as surprised as a board as we were by the fact that this had even happened and that we didn't know anything about it, told me that we could not self-cure on this, that we must have obvious blind spots and other parts within our ecosystem must have such blind spots that we would not be qualified to identify them because if we knew they were there, this wouldn't have happened. So to me, that was the easiest part was to say we need outside people to talk to all parties concerned as much as possible and to really look forensically to say not just the who did things, but how were they allowed to do those things or what cultural aspects of our world made it a disincentive for people to speak up or for people to blow a whistle or for people who maybe suspected that something might be happening, what prevented them from feeling that they could go to their bosses or to go to law enforcement. And it was very clear that we did need outside help, not just from the Borders Commission and from Ropes and Gray, who did the initial independent investigation. We also worked you know, with some outside help on communications because all of a sudden this was big news and it was everywhere. And of course that broke right in the middle of the Pyeongchang Olympics. So most of our, at the time, our board chair and most of our staff was over in Korea. And suddenly there's news everywhere and trying to manage that. And they, we had to have calls every single day at five in the morning, my time, because of everyone being in Asia. But we just knew that we needed help both to figure out how to address the athletes, the affected athletes, and what should we be saying to them? What should we be saying to the outside world? And what do we need to do? internally as well. This was a staff at the USOC, we hadn't changed our name yet, who loved their jobs, were very proud of their jobs, loved working with Team USA, and suddenly their CEO is gone. He's being vilified as a bad guy. Everywhere you go, people are saying the USOC is a bunch of rotten people who let these girls be abused. They'd gone from being the good guys, so proud of what they did, to suddenly we were very much the bad guys. And trying to rally those troops and help them deal with just all the change that had suddenly happened was another leadership challenge in addition to all the external things that were happening and trying to deal with gymnastics. So there was quite a boatload of leadership opportunities that were presented. Let me just understand, as I listened to you, I knew about some of this from afar, and I certainly welcomed your phone call when you said, we need some help, are you willing to, to step in and help us? But I know I didn't understand the magnitude of what was on your plate. You've just started to lay that out a little bit. Can you talk about what your days were like? Were they 20-hour days? Obviously, you were on the phone at 5 in the morning. You're on the left coast in California, but most folks were in Asia that were in leadership at that time. But talk just a little bit because we often hear particularly young executives who say, I want to work nine to five, I'm going home, I leave it at the (laughs) office, and there's perfect work-life balance. And I'm like, no, not exactly, particularly when there's a crisis. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And it really was about 20 hours a day at, at the beginning. In fact, when this very first broke, I was on vacation in Mexico with some friends. Remember, we used to do that before COVID. You could go on a plane and go on vacation. I was with, I think, four other couples. 
And I would get up at about five in the morning and start doing email. And all day they'd go to the beach and they'd play golf and they'd go to restaurants. And around six o'clock, I would take a break and go out to dinner with them. And for that entire week, I literally from about five in the morning till 11 or 12 at night was on the phone or, or doing emails. Now that is not a normal job. That's a crisis situation. And as I moved into the acting CEO role, I actually went to Colorado. I rented, rented a place and I split my time between San Francisco and Colorado, but three days a week I was in Colorado. So I was there physically for these people at, at the office who were still reeling from everything. And in a way, being away from your home environment does allow you to do more work. <laughs> so while I was there, that was pretty much another 20 hour days. And then when I was back in San Francisco, I could uh, try to make it a little bit more balanced. But the way I approached it initially, because it was such a big thorny problem, was I worked with the senior leadership team who fortunately knew me. So they knew me and trusted me. And I think that was easier for them than if a stranger had come in to try to pull everything back together. And we created what we call the pillar plan. We had five different pillars. And we tried to clump all of these issues into five different macro categories. And I'm not going to remember what they all were. But one was, what are we going to do with the athletes, the athlete engagement the problems relating to athletes. One of them was the actual legal situation we found ourselves in. All sorts of lawsuits were created. There was a litigation side of this that needed to be dealt with. Congress got very involved early on and had a number of hearings and the like. So we had a pillar that was really around how do we work with Congress and how do we manage the communications on the Hill and what are we doing there? Then there was a longer term operational, what do we have to change operationally with our national governing bodies, which are the individual sports? What do we need to do to improve our compliance and our oversight, et cetera, there? And I'm not going to remember what the fifth one was, but if you will, there were five pillars and they were all multi-dimensional. There was no one person anywhere in the USOC who was in charge of that pillar. That wasn't anyone's one job normally. So I had to create a leader in charge of each of those. And they were then empowered to go out and build whatever working groups they needed to from different disciplines and departments to try to address those problems. And that at least put some structure around it. And it gave us a terminology that internally we could talk about. And you could then create your project plan, just like you would if you were building a system or something, you have who's in charge and what's the deadlines and what are the to-dos and are they getting done? Are they not getting done? So creating a framework to address the crisis made everybody feel a little bit more in control. And while it was still a firestorm of work for myself and for everybody else involved, once you had a roadmap on how you were going to tackle the problem, it becomes doable. It goes on for a long time, but it becomes doable. Tell me this, because that's just a fabulous way to explain it. And the fact that you guys were able to break it into five categories or five pillars and attack it that way. Was the regular work of the US OPC going on simultaneously? So you've got a five alarm fire going, you've got regular work going. Presumably there probably wasn't any strategic planning going on because you had a crisis going on, but were the crisis and the regular work going on in parallel? To some extent. In fact, we had just finished a five-year strategic plan in the fall of 2017. So you could just pretty much take that if it were a piece of paper and rip it right up. So that kind of work needed to be put aside because a new strategic plan ultimately had to be developed. But remember, we were in the middle of the games <laughs> in Korea. So number one, that had to happen. And then there's a whole lot of once everyone comes back, some tying up with a bow, if you will, of the games and the Paralympics happened immediately thereafter. So the first month or so, right in the middle of the crisis, 
was essentially what would have normally been the peak of activity in our normal business. So that couldn't stop. That had to keep going. But we certainly did need to look at all of our priorities and say, what can wait and what must keep going forward? And we were able to bucket those things and quite a lot of things had to be deferred. We categorized those and said, nothing's going to happen on this for now. And we just marched ahead on what I would call the necessary and the important. The necessary being the day-to-day that simply had to occur And the important being, what are we going to do to redefine ourselves as an organization to find ways to prevent this from ever happening again, and to essentially learn from this terrible thing that had happened. So the necessary and the important had to take precedence over the, this could probably wait for a year. (laughs) Understand completely. And having had the privilege of working with you and my colleagues on the Borders Commission to address the acute issue, how do we strategically deal with all of these challenges and a subsequent report, which you guys have taken and now begun to do that work. Can you tell me just at a very high level, did you feel like the organization learned a lot through the process of the crisis and a strategic new direction, just not the individual things, but how do you think the organization has been perhaps enlightened? And then how have you been enlightened having gone through all of that? It's still going on, but you guys have addressed an amazing amount of the challenges. So how do you think the organization is doing in terms of its resilience and its learning from the challenges? The good news is I think, first of all, it is a very resilient organization and the people within it have recovered from that initial shock and unbalance, and I think have embraced what I would call the new work. And one of the very positive things that can happen from a crisis is if you take advantage of that crisis to catalyze change that might have otherwise been very difficult to do. The USOC, if nothing else, was a pretty, it's a very matrixed organization. It's got a lot of other constituents that are part of it and change does not come easily or quickly in that kind of a very bureaucratic sort of organization. So it took something this big to, in a sense, give you permission to say, let's really look at how we've always done things and see if there's a different way to do it. And I would say the big positive that has come out of this, and I think of this as a seesaw balancing, was that over the last 10 years before this happened, they had gotten very good at being very administratively good. It became much more corporate like the financials had become much better managed and things were just managed much better. So the seesaw had tipped to administrative competency much more because it used to be a mess. (laughs) So so a lot of time had been spent on that and that had been made better. And also our individual sports, now there's 55 of them, 10 years before they had a terrible relationship with the USOC. And over that 10 year period, a lot of time and attention had been spent on how do you get along better with these individual sports and how do you empower them and help the people who run skiing and fencing and uh, all the different sports. How can we be a good servant leader partner to them? So a lot of stuff had been put in that. Let's make friends and be good partners to the NGBs. And the side of the seesaw that had tipped down was the athletes. I think not intentionally, but it was taken for granted. We have these talented athletes. We're going to do a great job preparing them and getting them off to the games. And they're going to be very successful and win a lot of medals. And I think people were not adequately balancing the humanity of these athletes, thinking about their mental health, thinking about their well-being, thinking about what happens to them after they've been a star and suddenly they're not an athlete anymore and they have not finished school and they don't have job skills. A lot of those things that I would put in the category of athlete health and well-being 
we're underinvested in. So what we've basically come away from this crisis is getting that seesaw readjusted so that the athletes become very deliberately center stage again. I think we always thought they were, but maybe we just took too much for granted. So now they are very deliberately center stage. Their voice and governance is much louder. They have a lot more safety nets, if you will, to protect their health and well-being. So that seesaw has tipped. And you have to be mindful that you don't tip too far because now you don't want the sports to feel that they've been ignored and you can't become administratively incompetent. So I think what this has allowed us to do is take a look at that seesaw and say how many bags of sand need to be in each of these categories to make us a better, well-rounded organization. So that's, I think, the plus that has come out of this. We've learned a lot about not making assumptions or taking things for granted that need to be fed, that need to be nurtured, that if you don't do that, bad things can happen. Right. This is reminiscent of the adage of the boiling frog. The -hmm. frog is in the hot water and he doesn't realize he's dying because the temperature is being turned up incrementally. And oh my God, after a moment or after several moments, it is so hot. He's literally dying, but he doesn't realize it. So I am so grateful looking back on the work that we did together. The central premise of the Borders Commission was everything should be athlete centric. And I'm so happy and proud to say that you guys have taken that baton and you are running with it very quickly. Let me pivot for just a moment because you talked about being CEO and having stepped into the breach when USOPC was having a crisis And I put a pin in that in my mind because I want to turn to the comment that you made about being 40 and having small children, having the opportunity to be a CEO, but turning that down, you prioritized your family. And I'm so impressed by that. A lot of folks don't do that, particularly a lot of women. We think we'll never get another shot at being the leader. Can you talk about how you made that decision? We know what the decision was, but... Tell me a little bit about your thinking and how long did it take you to make that decision? Did you obsess over it or did you come to it quickly? How'd you do that? But really, you have to have the opportunity in a sense presented to you and then you have to decide what you're going to do. And it it came in two ways. One was, and I never used to even talk to recruiters because I loved my job, but I did get a call to be CEO of of an early stage startup in Silicon Valley. And I went down and I interviewed and guess who the founder was? It was Elon Musk who was already at that point, a he had already sold one or two companies, was already quite successful, but he was starting a new little company that had to do with electronically moving money. And he was interested in me because of my financial services background. And they were operating out of a tiny little office where, you know, a bunch of cardboard boxes and 15 year olds. And, and I was afraid they were all going to go to jail because I knew enough about the SEC that basically what they had planned to do was not okay within all of the regulations of the SEC. But I talked with, there was a venture capitalist who was funding this small company. And I took him aside and I said, can you tell me if there are any women CEOs in Silicon Valley with young children who have any sort of a balance of life? And he thought about it very seriously. And he said, there are none. And I said, guess what? I am not your person. Now, parenthetically, let me just tell you that this little company that was called X.com became, wait for it, PayPal. <laughs> so, oh my goodness, PayPal that we all use today. Oh my. Yes, exactly. So that was opportunity one. Opportunity two was that the CEO of my company at Schwab, who I had a good relationship with, had worked with him for many years, 
decided he wanted to mentor me and groom me. And it was clear that I was at least in the consideration set in his mind of potential people to succeed him. And we had these monthly mentoring meetings, et cetera. And this is, I think this is a very female thing. I think that many people would have just said, whatever, I'm just going to keep doing this. And they asked me, great. But I knew that I, at that point in my life, should not be the CEO of a giant company like Schwab because of the age of my children. So I decided I would be very honest and I would tell him. And I said, I see what you have to give up. I see the compromises that CEOs have to make in terms of their work-life balance. And uh, I don't feel that I could do this and I don't want to be disingenuous with you. I can tell you that those mentoring sessions stop very fast. (laughs) So I've often thought, was that smart? Was that wise to actually play my hand? But I felt like I had to do it from an integrity point of view. But once my name was taken off the list by myself, uh, the nurturing and mentoring ceased pretty rapidly. (laughs) You know, that's a fascinating story because I have similar stories. I've heard them from other people. I have experienced them myself too. And I've often asked, am I being too honest? And I think the answer is no, you can never be too honest. And as I look at corporate America, whether it's big companies or small companies, I realize that today we are both 30, 40 years into our careers and we're doing board work, nonprofit work and volunteer stuff. But as I look at younger executives, I realize they're still trying to decide what they should do and how honest they should be and how direct and how authentic. But it seems like the world is changing just a little bit. I'd be interested to hear your reflections that even bosses or colleagues who are trying to mentor one another or do succession plans, there's a recognition that you have to put a whole lot of people in the top of the funnel. It can't just be one person for whatever reason, whether it's small children, whether it's a health crisis, whether it's a family situation, or someone just gets in the process and they say, I don't like this. I'm not the one. I don't want to. But I'm finding that employees are stakeholders that CEOs and leaders, senior leaders are beginning to value more as opposed to, I can just replace that person tomorrow. What are you seeing? Yeah, I think that's very interesting because the flip side of that is that I think a lot of the millennials and the younger people, even younger than millennials who are in the workforce right now, are at a stage in their career where they aren't viewing a job the way 50 years people would have, where I'm going to pick a company, I'm going to be there until I retire, I'm going to go to General Motors or General Electric. It's a little bit more transactional where people are saying, I'm going to be here for a couple of years. It's very important to many young people, my kids included, that there be uh, balance. As you said, people are not envisioning a 60-hour work week. Now, some of that, I think, is the stage of their career and the like. And I think as people find their way and begin to find work that is not just work that is a passion. If you're really interested in it, you begin to do more work and you really like it and you're more driven by it and it does begin to consume more of your life. And I think employers, to your point, are recognizing that in this more transactional work world, you have to do more to retain employees and not just in terms of money, but you have to do other things that help accommodate that desire they have for authenticity, for meaning, as well as work-life balance. So those are things that maybe 20 or so years ago, a lot of employers would have said, heck with that. If I give you a paycheck, you ought to be grateful. I think now because there is an economy where in many sectors they need to have employees and that you want it, it costs a lot to replace an employee and retrain them. So retention of people and helping them 
find ways to balance their life with that job and that role so that it can become a career and it can become as meaningful to them as it perhaps was to me in early in my career when I worked at these companies. That's something employers are both mindful of and I think trying to do. Yeah, so let me just wrap us here by giving folks a little context and reminding everyone that we're in the midst of a global pandemic and we have been in this place for nine months, going on 10 months. And yes, there are two or perhaps even three vaccines on the horizon, but now there's big discussion about who gets it first, how long it will take to get rolled out. Tell me, if you will, let me pull out our crystal ball. And as we think about the economy and where the world is going, how do you think employers will start thinking about their employees? Because we have seen folks go out of business like crazy. We are seeing Americans get very sick and particularly not just those who are seniors and have medical conditions, but sometimes even young kids who are passing away. So the world is literally shrinking in a very interesting way. But at some point, we're going to get our sea legs back and come back as a country and as a world. How do you think companies, organizations like USOPC are not exactly the same as a corporate person, obviously, but how do you think folks will think about their employees and their shareholders and more importantly, their stakeholders, which is broader than the people who actually own a piece of the company or who work in a company? Yeah, I think that this pandemic will fundamentally change work around the world in a lot of different ways and life and what people value. From a work perspective and a company perspective, I think many companies, particularly larger ones, have realized that you can have people work very effectively offsite and virtually. There always was a fear that if you let people work from home, even if it was one day a week, that somehow they weren't going to get anything done. And of necessity, we've had this interesting test, which revealed that there are people who work hard still work hard. My son is a very driven person. He's 25 and he's been here working from home for a couple of months. That guy is on (laughs) first thing in the morning and he does not get off and he is not running around kicking the football around or watching TV or playing video games. He is working full time, sitting at a desk at home. So I think a lot of employers will realize that number one, you can have employees in different parts of the country that you don't necessarily have to have these campuses or force people to consolidate in one geographic area. I think that it will make a lot of sense for people to have more flexible hours and more opportunities to work offsite. Again, can reduce a lot of costs that way. You don't have to have as many desks in a big company. You won't have everybody having their own office. Everybody's going to be in a kind of flexible pool and whoever's there that day is going to have a seat that they can sit in, but it'll be maybe a third the size of a building that you used to have. So I think there's a lot of fundamental changes there. I also think we've all learned how valuable it is to be able to have a little bit of time to breathe, to take a conference call or a phone call while you're walking on a hike or walking the dog, to be able to just have a little more work-life balance while still working hard. I think we really had gotten into a very unhealthy place in the way we thought that you pretty much had to be sitting at work doing work or you weren't a good employee. We have all really enjoyed that aspect of this in some ways, having a little bit more time to balance those things. We're all going to appreciate the socialization of the workplace so much in the future, as well as in our personal lives, realizing how connected we need to be as organisms to other organisms like ourselves has been a giant wake-up call. 
And just sociologically, I think things that are happening now that maybe couldn't have happened when we were so busy, things like the racial justice movement that has partly gained its steam because people were not so obsessed with being in an office or sitting in a chair that they had time to follow their hearts and to bond together and protest and do things that maybe just because of time constraints didn't take wing in the way that it has now. And of course, there were very serious catalysts to that as well. But I think it was able to get more Zoom behind it because of the situation we're in with the pandemic. And healthcare is certainly going to be something, both as an industry and a business and opportunities for companies and employees. But here's another example where you realize the haves and the have-nots. We are built on a country of healthcare related to having a job. And if you are one of the people who is not fortunate to have a job with healthcare, you are underserved in that capacity. And we discovered in a very bad way how disease discriminates if you don't have appropriate health care. So there's a lot of sociological and political things that I think we will, I hope, take heart from and learn from, and they will create business opportunities, even though there are businesses that have failed and individuals very seriously impacted. This is one of those reshuffling of the decks and the cards where there are going to be new opportunities for jobs and for businesses, even where some doors closed. And that's where individuals hopefully have to either retrain their skills or have the look for those opportunities, look for growth areas that may be different from the path they were on before. And again, use a crisis as a catalyst to change and to really examine what do they want to be doing? What do they need to learn to be more successful in their lives and in their careers? Again, it's a perfect metaphor for what we went through that sometimes you need a crisis to catalyze positive change. And, and I think we can all hope that's what'll be the good part of this very tragic world situation we're in. I know, a catalyst, a crisis as a catalyst for change. And certainly USOPC has been through that. We all have seen that in our own personal and professional lives, but I am so impressed and inspired by your observations, but more importantly, by your forecasts of we will live, live more enlightened lives because we have been through this crisis together called a pandemic and the world will change dramatically, but we will adapt and we will adjust and hopefully things will be better on the other side. Suzanne Lyons, board chair of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Thank you so much. Such a privilege and a pleasure. I'm blessed to call you friend. Thank you so much, Lisa. As always, it's wonderful to connect with you and speak with you. And thank you for asking me to share some of my history as well. Absolutely. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.